Live to see it, friends, and welcome to The World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At The World Transformed, we want to introduce you to what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Monday. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm doing great. It's, uh, it's great to be back on the show. I, I missed out on a, a really awesome week last week of you and Thomas Fry, just basically covering the Man, future of everything. Fun. And that, uh, that I, guy I, is a, he's a, he is a, uh, it's a fun in, interview. Anytime we have a chance to talk to him, uh, it always, it's always interesting and, uh, he's a great guest. So, um, you know, but you were missed and, and, uh, and so glad to have you back. Phil. Well, thanks. I, it's, it's good to be back and I missed, I missed being here, but, uh, let me just second those comments. And Thomas, if you're listening, come back anytime. We love having you on the show. And for those who haven't caught up with last week's shows, you got to listen to the future of power, the future, the self-driving car future, and the future of cities, all amazing topics. And th- Thomas leads us in some really, really interesting, interesting directions. Things, uh, topics we'll be revisiting, obviously, in the weeks and months to come, things we talk about all the time. But very interesting perspectives that he brings to each of these. And I feel like I learned something new every time I talk to this guy. So it's, it's just it's so much fun having him on the show. And it's so great to be back. It's great to be great to be feeling better. I, you know, we actually pre-recorded those shows. I was ill the night that you recorded that three-part interview with with Thomas, and then I was on vacation last week. So, it's, yeah, it, it's almost so a disorienting. Of the two, right? Yeah, yeah being <laughs> back, but uh, it, it is it is good to be back. I was at Walt Disney World, and we're gonna have to do a show about Disney one of these days, Stephen. You want to talk yeah, about yeah, I, there there's there some interesting things to talk about there. Um, you know, I I even even his his whole Epcot idea is worth a whole show right there. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was you back know? at Epcot. It, we, and the just, Epcot we got is not the Epcot that was envisioned by Disney. It is not yeah. what he had in mind at all. And in fact, the Walt yeah. Disney World we have is not what he had in mind. It would it would have been much more just kind of a big Epcot. Yeah. Unfortunately, he passed right as construction was beginning, right, right, actually before construction even started. But between Tomorrowland and Epcot and some of the ideas that he had about how, how cities could be laid out and, and the role that technology had to play in the future, a real, a real visionary, a real 20th century visionary. And, and I was continually reminded of the role he played because walking into Epcot, you see that spaceship earth that big geodesic dome which of course the idea came the the you know the guy who came up with that idea was r buckminster fuller so it's like you're walking yeah. in this very futuristic place uh, spaceship earth was a concept that that bucky came up with the geodesic dome was something that he came up with and it's just it's we, we need we need more we need I, i'll tell you the show we should do we should do a elon musk walt disney comparison i think that's the, the that's hey, what i like people, that Need yeah. to hear how there how there there's a Tony and I'm gonna you know I throw Tony Stark the fictional character in the mix too because uh, there's some interesting uh, parallels between those two real life men and 
and our and our fictional Tony Stark. I think uh, it, it, we could get into that too. So well, there you go. So that'll be a show we do somewhere down the road. But hey, we got a show to do tonight as well. So we might as well work on that one while we're while we're talking about the world transformed. Tonight we're talking about future wealth, universal basic income, and alternatives. And it occurred to me to do a show on this just because things kept popping up that were alternatives. Suddenly we're seeing all this, here's an idea other than universal basic income that might work better than universal basic income. And I thought that was interesting because UBI is one of these ideas that just pops up frequently now in futures yep. discussions. It's, it's become almost kind of a, a given that it's one of the things we'll be either enjoying in the future or that we should already have. It's, it's got a lot of support behind it. And just to catch up anyone who's not in on what we mean by that, universal basic income is the idea that basically the government pays everybody money every month, right, or every week or how and, often. And that's, that's everybody. You know, that's basically right. it's, it's the, uh, um, okay, here's what it takes to stay alive, okay, uh, you know, um, ba- the most basic housing, the most basic uh, – you know, uh, what, what am I saying? Basic, basic uh, food, food uh, right? Power. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. And um, okay, so what? You know, uh, let's write a check to everybody for that amount, and so that will uh, cover your, you know, keep you fed, keep you clothed, keep you housed, and here's the amount. We we figured the bare minimum of that is whatever it is, a thousand dollars a month. It'd probably be more than that, but I, I don't know. But so then everybody in society, everyone that the government is beholden to or that is part of that country, part of that state, whatever the, whatever the organizing entity is, then gets a check from then on. It's a universal right. basic income. So if you're poor, you get it. If you're the richest guy in town, you get it, right? Everybody gets it. Universal right. basic income. And the idea is that eventually that's how we keep the economy going. As automation kicks in, as it seems that assets and wealth continue to be kind of centralized into smaller and smaller entities. This is a way of kind of keeping the money flowing. It's a way of keeping people viable, keeping them economically viable, and also sort of maintaining an economy whereby there's people spending money, there's consumers actually using the things that businesses provide. So that's an idea. It's, it, it, it has its very strong arguments, and it has its weak points. But we've talked about universal basic income before, now we're going to talk about some ideas, I don't know, para-universal basic, basic income ideas, right? We'll start with this one. IGP's Social Prosperity Network publishes the UK's first report on universal basic services. So I thought, okay, well, this is interesting. This is not income. This is services. And here they're talking about social housing, free bus travel, meal provision to those most at risk of food insecurity and basic phone and internet access. So, uh, so it's like instead of a check, these people might be getting a check else from elsewhere in the government. But here they're talking about just kind of this core fundamental baseline of stuff that you need to be alive. You, gotta, you, you need transportation. You need something to eat. And they talk about it in terms of in the UK kind of running parallel to their national health service, right, which is the government-supplied free health care, right? So now you've got government-supplied free health care, and here's government-supplied free, what, everything else, I guess you <laughs> would describe this as, right? That's and, kinda... and I get the, you know, obviously this is not the sort of thing that apply, that everyone gets. 
is. You know, if you're the richest person in town, you know, why, you know, you don't have to go move in government housing. (laughs) I mean, so this is, this is a, this is just a safety net for the the poorest. Um, In fact, this this falls down as universal basic services with the first word because it's not universal. This is needs based. Yeah. So swing, swing it back up to universal basic income. And it's like, everybody gets a check. This is, Everybody gets stuff. Either you've got your own stuff or we give you stuff, which is not a universal basic income model. Right. So you spotted it immediately, Stephen. To me, to me, it's not universal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is this is the this is the interesting fact to note about some of these things that are being mentioned as alternatives to universal basic income. What I've seen of them, they're not universal in the same sense that universal basic income is. UBI is truly universal. And here's an idea that is basically helping out the poor. So that's a good idea or not a good idea. And there are variations on on it that might be good or might not be so great. But right off the bat, all they're doing is rebranding government assistance to poor people. Right, right. (laughs) With universal... Basically. And and of course the uh, you know the uh, what they're trying to do is uh, have everybody you know here's the lowest you can fall okay right. and we're we're gonna we're gonna set the floor above where it was before and here's the lowest you can fall and uh, and the, we will not allow it to get any worse than this you can you won't starve to death uh, and you won't die of exposure out on the streets here is where you know here's the here's the here's the lowest you can fall. I, you know, and and so it's just a, it's it's basically a, it's a welfare program is what it is, and uh, you know, uh-huh. welfare programs are not anything new, um, and so this is I, I I don't see this as is really all that uh, uh, revolutionary, Phil. I mean, do you see anything here that's that you know um, changes the way we uh, governments in, uh, in the first world have done things uh, for you know sixty years? Oh, I think it might. I, I, the, the, the difference here is just that it has set a floor across the board. Yeah, that, yeah. That, might be, that might be different, that it has set a floor and said no one lives without having this much stuff, right? Nobody, no, nobody gets by without having uh, at least a place to live, at least, which I, I – Presumably, even in the UK, you still can. You can still be a person and be homeless, or you can, you, you can, you can still be a person and not have access to some of these things. So, to the extent that it sets a complete, a complete baseline of li- kind of almost like lifestyle baseline, almost kind of a subsistence baseline for for how you how you get by, that's different. But otherwise, no, it's not. It's not different. And frankly. When you compare it to universal basic income, it sounds a lot more complicated and a lot more expensive, right? <laughs> to me, that's the that would be my critique of it. It sounds it sounds like this is a much harder thing to accomplish than universal basic income. Good goal, right? Making sure that nobody's without housing or no one's without transportation or any of that kind of stuff. It's almost not not to not to use this term in a in a demeaning way. It sounds kind of ironic or sarcastic to use it, but it's almost kind of like this concierge service the government's providing, right, to make sure everybody's taken care of, which is nice. It's a nice idea, but it sounds to me like it would be expensive, and it sounds to me like it would be very complicated. Compa- well, compared you know, to just cutting everyone a check. 
Yeah, well, um, it talks it, it, it talks about uh, the cost here within the article, and it says it would rec- it would represent just two point three percent of UK GDP, according to you know this advocate of the program. But it never turns out to be that way. Um, you know, I don't I don't think that uh, you have to be Rush Limbaugh or somebody on the far far right to uh, to admit that uh, these programs n- always turn out to be more uh, expensive than. Uh, than they are first, uh, as they are sold to be, and uh, so you know, I, it, and they tend to, and they tend to grow over time too. So uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think you'll, you'll definitely you'll definitely see program creep. You'll definitely see a lot more people on it than you originally envisioned. You'll right. see it doing a lot of things that you didn't originally intend for it to do, and you'll have well, it going on at the same time. You're still providing financial aid to people. That right. won't go away. People will and, still be on the dole. We'll still be getting checks, and so and so the question is, how you know how much good does this do compared to probably a lot of services that that you already have? Well, let's let's swap this well, one. Well, and, and I I got to throw out the the main problem with any any sort of program like this is that if you reduce the need for people to work for a living, fewer people will work for a living, and that's just the way it's always been. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we have a labor force participation problem in this country already. And, uh, and to the extent that people are not participating in the labor, fo- labor force, it creates all sorts of other societal problems. And uh, so, you know, Okay, but I would see that as more an argument against universal basic income too, right? Yeah, of course. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm applying this across the board. And, uh, and so it's it's a, it's this is a, a societal problem that you know and and it, it just doesn't it, it tends to erode your you know uh, the uh, the desire for people to work and um, and that's the only okay so let's that. sidebar that because that's going to apply across yeah. the board to anything we talk about right I mean of that, course of course yeah, of course. yeah that's a, that's a that's a good critique but it, it, whether we're cutting a check. Uh, whether we're providing a set of services or whether we're doing what's what's listed well, in the next one. My, my, that argument that I just made is um, is eroded by the automation problem too, though, isn't it? If, well, exactly. If, you got to do something, if, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if uh, if everybody's automated out of a job anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, what what, what do we do? I mean, people got to eat. So, my my thought on. And on all of these programs, Phil, is that, and I'm, I'm probably jumping the gun with this, but I'm going to go ahead, is that they need to be implemented, but, man, you got to be careful not to implement them too quickly. This, this is a transition that society, I think, will have to make at some point. Uh, but if, if it's done too quickly, then, um, and then you know, we, we, have a, we end up with a huge problem. So, anyway. I think that's I think that's true, and it, it's the the point is, if you give people an incentive to do something or not to do something, they're going to tend to do or not do that thing, and we're constantly creating incentives, intentionally and unintentionally, through this kind of stuff. Right. You talk about an incentive to be in the workforce or not be in the workforce. The great thing about UBI is there's no incentive not to be in the workforce. Because I mean, there, there. I, let me let me retract that. There is less of an incentive not to be in the workforce because it's not a deal where the check stops if you get a job. 
right, as distinct right. from a traditional welfare and, program. Where and, and, if and the state's we, paying me five hundred a month, but I can go get a job and make fifteen hundred a month, and now I got two thousand a month on UBI, right? Right. right. So I'm. It, and and uh, we our our desire for more, uh, human nature is such that our desire for more, and it doesn't seem to have much of an end, or at least right. not up until, you know. You know, uh, at least not up until you get to six figures or so or above, right? Uh, you, you know, at some at some point you might say, you know what, I, I have enough, and uh, and I, I think I'll kick back and enjoy it. But uh, it it requires a lot of money before people get to that point. And so, yeah, um, universal basic income doesn't have that problem of uh, you can have this check, but only if you don't work. Problem is uh, is not part of universal basic income. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely you at, correct. If you look at this next one, the Institute for the Future, like these guys, they come up with some really interesting ideas. They have taken, they've taken a step back, and they're looking at this from a more kind of theoretical approach, and they've come up with this idea called Universal Basic Assets, and they've published this fundamental set of resources that everybody needs to have access to. So they, they talk, in, and it's a neat little document, but they, they talk in terms of what everyone would have to have that income isn't the answer that in fact people need to have assets and they, one of the things that's interesting about this is they don't just talk you, you think that it's going to be strictly speaking well everybody needs to have what 40 acres and a mule right you know some some kind of some kind of real world infrastructure and that's part of it but the other part is digital assets which they say are right. going to be increasingly important and the great thing about digital assets of course is that they're easier to distribute they're easier to make copies of, and it's easier to give everybody digital assets. That's you know the the beautiful the, the beautiful thing about the digital world. But anyway, I, I urge everyone to take a look at this document. It's it's quite interesting, and it's longer than we're going to have time for now. But these are well, can interesting. I boil it down just a little bit? I mean, um, sure. One one argument that we've made often is that uh, in a world that becomes increasingly automated, fewer and fewer people have jobs. Those who are continuing to do well in such a world are those who own the, you know, the businesses that are automated, right? Yep. And um, and so if if one one form of universal basic assets could be distribution of stock in companies that are are automated, and the more and the more automated your company becomes, you know, the more perhaps that you should be required uh, to sell stocks under these programs or something. So. Um, that's um, uh, you know that is one version of what we're talking about. Absolutely, that that might work if you look at their if you look at their infographic. They divide everything into private assets, things that people own individually, public assets, and open assets. And what you're describing, Stephen, I think would be in that interesting border region between the public, the private, and the public assets. Right, right. It's right. it's things that would have been private at one point that become sort of public, but then they end up in kind of private ownership. So it's this kind of hybridization of, pu- of the public versus private sphere. Spear. And I think yeah. you, you, uh, you, with this hybrid, uh, you avoid some of the problems of, uh, that you'd have before. And, and, and you're thinking, well, why, why should these companies that are automating be uh, required to, uh, uh, you know, to, do, to participate in a program like that? Well, um, because you're automating people out of their jobs. And, you know, and that... And so we got it. We have to take into account that hey, that is having huge impacts over in this sector of the economy. Even while you guys are getting are doing better because you're automated, 
um, you know, this this uh, this group over here is doing worse because they're they're out of jobs, right? So uh, it, it it requires a recognition of that. But it it you know a a big portion of what they have going forward is uh, is not coming from the government, but it's coming from uh, ownership. Yeah, so. the, the the thing is, Stephen, I'm for for all of our positioning ourselves as pretty middle of the road and we don't get too radical most of the time, what you're suggesting would be viewed by many as quite radical because yeah. what, you, what you're talking about is not just an income tax. It's like an equity tax. If you're going if, if to own so much of the economy, you have to sort of pay that ownership of the economy back to the, to the public, in, in effect, that the, the public gets some of that, gets some of that ownership because you don't get to own the whole thing anymore, right? So, I mean, this well, would, I, I'm not suggesting they're not paid, uh, that these companies are not paid for the transfer of the ownership interest. But they wouldn't I'm have just, an option. They, they would never have a choice. Would, but they wouldn't have an option. If you choose to automate, yeah. then you would have to sell to the government, basically, who would then distribute the, uh, these, uh, uh, the, the Equity stock. Equity in the company, right, yeah. Exactly, I mean, around. Yeah. Exactly. So it's a... It is pretty I, radical, though. I, it's I, radical. Well, let me tell you. I mean, because let, let me just, let me just say because if you look at the if if you look at the universal basic apps, assets infographic here, I don't think they go that far, right? <laughs> and this is the Institute for the Future, right? They're from the Bay Area, and they don't go as far as Stephen Gordon. Okay, so you're, <laughs> yeah, I, I think Mr. Mr. Way Right of Center uh, <laughs> is suggesting something more radical. That's yeah. that's right. I think yeah. they need to listen to the show. Okay, they need to listen to this show in particular and think and think about some of these ideas, because I mean they do have you know on the um, private asset side they got stuff like the minimum wage and things like things that we would think of as kind of passe solutions in a universal basic income world, but they're kind of building up to it. So they're definitely, they're definitely into the idea of these kinds of social programs, but I don't see anything going quite that far. They have social funds and things like that. But your idea of this kind of taxed equity, government-purchased equity, redistributed equity is unique as far as I know. I haven't seen, I haven't seen anything no, else. I don't, I, I've, I've, not, I've not seen this proposed anywhere else. But, but the, you want to talk about a basic asset, ownership in the economy as a basic asset. And they sort of get to it the other way by the fact that everything becomes digital and we all have access to these, to these digital assets. But I don't know. I think having access to the Internet is not the same as having skin in the game with a, a, a share of Amazon or a share of Apple or something or, you know, a, a piece of Google. I think that is fundamentally different and it's fundamentally a more concrete asset it's something that would that would come in a lot handier at least at this stage in the game and it could be that the economy is going to change such that that won't be as big a deal anymore which kind of which would take us to our last one but we're not quite there yet because i wanted to mention the the other model that's worth looking at is brian wong's basic power concept his idea is just bringing power to the developing world and, he, and if if you go back and listen to that show, I think we've done a couple shows with him now talking about this. It's, right. it's, it's such a straightforward idea. He doesn't say universal basic power, although the idea is to get power to everybody who doesn't have it. So the world would universally have power at this point. But one of the things his idea, Brian, is, a his idea is a recognition field that uh, power is, is, the, is the ultimate gateway, right? I mean, if you have electricity, you can participate in the world economy now. 
Um, exactly. Yeah. By way of the internet. And uh, if you don't have it and you are outside of it, then you're getting left further and further behind every day. And uh, so that that's um, and and he proposes some things that would make it remarkably um, affordable to bring uh, these these uh, remaining economies in the world online, basically. And uh, and and I, I think it's the sort of thing that uh, it would pay dividends because. Once once people are in, are plugged in, you know they get productive, right? I mean, so absolutely. I mean, that's the that's the whole idea. So. In yeah. fact, the 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 whole program is predicated on the idea that it opens up markets. It opens up markets. It creates opportunities for those who produce this kind of at the edge solar infrastructure. It creates opportunities for those who produce low wattage appliances because that, that's part of what would be happening here. You're talking about you're going to remote villages in India and Africa, places where we're not talking about we're going to extend the power grid all the way out there. What are we going to do? We're going to put some basic solar infrastructure in place and we're giving power at the site, at the spot where they are, and they're going to have power. Well, how much are they going to get? Not nearly as much, right, as they would if you, if you were able to connect the grid through some hydroelectric dam. So what kind of devices will they be running? Well, even if they get a laptop and a mobile phone, a satellite dish, and a shared TV for the community or for a couple of households or something like that, you want those to be radically different from the ones we use because we're energy hogs, right? We, we don't care how much power yeah. we're sucking with these devices. But there are devices that are made specifically to run off-grid, and this would create a huge market for those as NGOs, government agencies, and those who are funding this thing get serious about, about pushing this out there. And to your point, these folks then become economically independent in a way that they, that they, that they currently are not. They become players in the world economy in a way that they're currently re restricted from. Electricity is the key. I was having a discussion. I was working on editing giving some suggestions to Brian and talking to my wife about this basic power. And she said, well, what do you, what do you mean power? What about food? We've got to get food to the developing world. We're going to talk later this week about one of the big problems that the World Health Organization has identified for the developing world. And you know what that big problem is? Obesity. Identifying who has the problem. No, <laughs> obesity is one of the big problems in the, in the developing huh, world. Yeah. Yeah. Food isn't the issue anymore. We, by and large, we can get food to people who need it. But that's not bringing them into the global economy. This actually connects them into the, into the global economy. And per Brian's plan, as he described it on the show, listen to the show, you can do this for a lot cheaper than current development efforts that are planned anyway. So it's not like we have to spend a lot of money that wasn't going to be spent. We don't have to look around for the money to do it. We can actually divert the funds that are currently being dedicated to just kind of expanding the grid, and we can solve the global power problem and create trillions, literally trillions, in GDP value worldwide. So that, I think, is kind of a clarion call for how, where discussions around universal basic income need to be going. The idea of let's create the basic infrastructure that lets people empower themselves. And I think it all goes to the idea of post-scarcity, which is an idea that doesn't get enough attention anymore. I think we keep losing it, and I think we need to keep coming back to it. The idea that technology 
is driving us to a place where we can provide infrastructure, where we can provide all the stuff that the folks are trying to, trying to give to the poor in the UK with their basic services, or a lot of the stuff that's described under universal basic assets in the Institute for the Future, where that stuff can be made radically cheaper, where it can be made radically more available because of automation, because of digitization. And that's the driver that needs to be behind any of this. That's the thing we need to be talking about before we talk about universal basic income, universal basic services, universal basic assets. We need to talk about how do we go about radically simplifying fulfilling these particular needs? How, how do we go about ephemeralizing them, right, if you will? Right. That, that that needs to be – and this goes back to my rant, which is not appropriate for this show, but we'll talk about some other time, on affordable health care, right? We forgot to make it affordable first, right? We, we forgot to ephemeralize health care yeah. before we solved all the economic problems around health care. We need to look at abundance. We need to look at post-scarcity. And if we let that, if we let that drive our models, I think we can get to – we can get to the economic future we're looking to we're looking for in much more direct much faster ways and without a lot of the heartburn that some of these other approaches might might give us but it's but it's i guess it's the most radical of all isn't it because it requires yeah. the the economy changing in ways that people just aren't used to thinking about the economy working that way absolutely absolutely and and because and and i'm going to tell you the uh, our 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 uh, leaders are the last to get this post scarcity thing. Right. Uh, um, our politicians are always are, are always solving, you know, last decades problems today, and when we should be at best, uh, if not the last centuries. Be, yeah. Exactly, and uh, when we need to be solving next decades problems today, and and so it, you're right. It's uh, it's something that. Uh, um, our, our leaders on neither the right or the left have really embraced and, and fully understand. And um, you're, exactly. Um, so we're going to keep pushing for it. You're going to keep hearing it here. Abundance, post-scarcity, let that be the driver, and then we can talk about the rest. The rest of this stuff becomes easy, relatively speaking, if you, if you, if you ephemeralize first, if you go post-scarcity first. So that's the big push that we have to make. And unfortunately, that's all the time we have. So we'll have to continue solving the world's economic problems uh, a little bit further down the road. But I think we made a great start tonight. I feel, <laughs> okay. I feel we did good work. I hope we have. Time. I hope we have. Well, it's been great talking with you, Stephen. It's been great having you all with us. We're going to be back on Wednesday with a brand new show. Look forward to talking to you all then. And until next time, live to see it. 